1: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org.
2: This is the summer series for Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio, where we bring you the best shows of 2017. For more information, head to bze.org.au. Or if you're listening through 3CR, 8.55am, please don't touch that dial. Enjoy the program.
1: Come with us now to the Transition Film Festival. You're in Sydney, you go over the Harbour Bridge, you come to Cremorne. The cinema is one of those old-fashioned ones with plush seats and beautiful red and gold curtains. It's called the Hayden Orpheum. The film tonight is called How to Let Go of the World and love all the things that climate can't change. Now, you're wondering what on earth could that be, seeing as climate change is meant to be changing everything. But Josh Fox, went he made Gasland, you might remember, and he went through a sort of crisis thinking about Gasland, OK, gas is one part of it, but the bigger picture is climate change and what can be salvaged. We start with uh, David Ritter He's the CEO of Greenpeace and he introduced the film in this way.
2: I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia Pacific and I just want to welcome you and thank you for coming along on a Friday night to a film that it must be said is not necessarily your typical date film. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, the thank you for the uh, recognition of that. Um, but it is a film of extraordinary importance in these times and. Um, It's a film that engages with the subjects of of hope and loss in a very deep way uh, by a very skilled and charismatic filmmaker. And I particularly have those themes of hope and loss in mind this evening because I'm fortunate enough tonight to be joined by a couple of people with whom I recently uh, visited the extraordinary research station on Lizard Island up in the Great Barrier Reef. And we were there to uh, see a year after the great bleaching of the turn of 2015, 2016, exactly how the reef was faring. And uh, it is an extraordinary experience. Now, it was particularly extraordinary for me because I am a remarkably bad swimmer. Um, I... Uh, have described myself when I swim as resembling a wind-up monkey in a bowl of porridge. Um, The comment has been given back to me that that's an overly flattering self-assessment. So there was certainly a personal element of conquering uh, discomfort and uncertainty to go from being barely able to swim and terrified of the open ocean to uh, being on the outer reef with sharks in the course of a couple of days, but all in the all in the spirit of the need to complete the mission. And what you see when you put your head under the water and uh, algal-covered remains just spread out before you in every direction um, is deeply distressing. It's a kind of carnage, and and, uh, your memories afterwards are memories from a human-induced disaster zone. And yet... And yet, still there are fish there, fewer in number, but there are fish there, and those fish that are there are colourful and miraculous. My friend and comrade Sid made the observation that uh, you didn't really know the meaning of the word iridescent until you have that experience. And yet, and yet, you were there with with friends and comrades that you care about, and you are there in the company of scientists who continue to be truth-tellers And so having an experience where you simultaneously have this yawning gulf of loss of the damage that has been done to our Great Barrier Reef, of which we are custodians, and yet you still have that determined and soaring sense of love and of hope that comes with seeing the beauty that is still there to be fought for, and that goes with the company of friends, and the uh, shining ideal of truth-telling. So with that experience recently in mind, I'm very, very pleased to sit down with you all to watch this film this evening, and my one hope from it is that if you aren't already a keen follower of the Transitions Film Festival and you are not already a signed-up, engaged supporter with Greenpeace, that you do take the moment to pick up a pencil on the way out to uh, sign up for those two uh, uh, worthy ways in which you can contribute to the great struggle, the great quest, the great fight that we have to save all that we have uh, and to uh, also cherish and and honourably mourn things that we have already lost. Thank you, and
1: enjoy the film. After the film, I walked out into the foyer and asked some people if they'd like to comment on the film. I met a Muslim couple who were very moved by it.
3: I'm still a little bit overwhelmed, but I, yeah. I
4: really enjoyed it. Um, I, don't know, I don't know whether to be sad or hopeful, but I think it's, just, it's something we just have to deal with.
1: What
5: about you? I feel it was an eye-opener. <clears throat> I feel, sir. I feel way of life is destroying other people's lives. We need to be more aware. These films need to go on public TV. People shouldn't have to pay forty dollars to see them. They should be part of our educational programs at schools. The teenagers of today are the leaders of tomorrow. They need to be awakened. Their conscience, their morals, their ethics they need to be turned back on because they're turned off at the moment.
1: That's right. The film mentioned moral imagination when they're on the Great Wall of China and I thought that was really true. It's liberating to think like that.
5: Yeah, I feel uh, I feel we should, uh, to the best of our of our ability to uh, pursue renewable sources of energy, uh, I was a fish farmer once, and I know the value of solar energy. But I also recently discovered the value of um, wind energy. Um, wind energy is even easier to har to har- to harvest and to harness than than solar power, uh, and that can dig wells, it can bring water up from the deep, it can uh, it can water plants it can light up schools uh, it can be stored and reused as needed. We don't need to burn coal we don't need nuclear f- energy, we really don't we have other ways, they may be more expen- expensive they may, we may have to work harder at them but we have ways, we have choice we need to make the right choices Thank you. you.
1: The next people I met in the foyer of the theatre were a group of three. There's an American lady, an English lady and a man who had been to China.
3: How to let go of the world and accept all the things that climate can't change. That's right. What stood out for you? Despair and hope, I think. I think that's what stood out for me the most because it's hard not to feel despair at the state of the world. And the continuing way that we keep pillaging and raping the world. Um, and it's at the same time a story of hope and community and love and celebrating that. Um, and I guess my wish is that it wasn't just part of a one off festival, but something that everyone could have access to and see and, um, you know, that instead of, or not instead of, but maybe alongside guardians of the galaxy volume two um maybe we could actually have more of these films in cinemas as part of an everyday life well
0: it was a an overwhelming uh i guess tour of the both the problems and the solutions around the world and whilst it did show how horrendous the problems are um it showed a lot of people who are bringing great um courage and uh um, leadership and entrepreneurship to, to the solution. So it was um, a film that uh, was really challenging but offered, offered great hope as well.
1: What, what scenes impressed you? I, I was totally overwhelmed by the Chinese scenes where it was totally covered in smog, the people couldn't open their windows. I didn't realize it was that bad. But what, what, what scenes sort of um, will stay with you?
0: Um, well, I'm afraid I've been to Beijing, so I've experienced <laughs> what it's like to look out the uh, the window and see the and look be able to look straight at the sun, and it, it is that bad. Um, I guess the devastation in uh, in and around New York shocked me uh, more than anything else. I guess I I hadn't realised um, just you know I I knew there was subways. Uh, Flooded and lots of other damage, but I hadn't realised it was as severe as it was. But then, you know, at the end, it, the lady talking about the um, uh, help centre, you know, that three years later they've um, recovered their community, and so that gives gives hope. Yeah. yeah.
4: Well, look, I think the film highlighted the urgency of the problem in a way that perhaps many people don't realise. Um, The scenes of the flooding, um, I think, was shocking to a lot of people, actually. They hadn't realised that climate change is quite so serious and quite so immediate and affecting so many people. I think the film also really highlighted that it's a human problem and that if we can't solve climate change... Actually, that's about our survival as a civilization. It's not just about animals and species. And I, th- I think that the film took us down to the dark depths but then brought us up in a very hopeful ending that you know, people around the world are working on this problem together.
1: I think the Josh Fox character, you know, he, him playing his ukulele and him saying, it's overwhelming, it's overwhelming, you could identify with that. A lot of people would think, oh, that's giving up, but he's being human and a lot of people say, yes, that's true.
4: Look, I think absolutely it is overwhelming. I feel overwhelmed. I think most people do. I think there is a need to show the gloom and doom to get people to act. We know that that's important or people won't act, but it's important that we show hope as well and that we're all working on this problem together or we will switch people off. They will just go into overwhelm and do nothing.
1: We'll finish with some music that was part of the film. The scene is the subway system of New York City after Hurricane Sandy had flooded the whole system. And he's standing there on a station platform with a microphone and a ukulele, or, oh, no, like a little guitar, and he's a banjo, maybe, and he's singing this poignant song. As we then see lots of films, you can see it on YouTube if you look up How to Change, How to Let Go of the World, a film by Josh Fox. Look that up, and you'll see this beautiful YouTube of the devastation caused by the uh, hurricane. But this beautiful man singing his heart out in the subway. we've been talking tonight about the film by Josh Fox called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things That Climate Change Can't Change. Now the things that he comes up with that climate change won't change are our sense of community, our love of human rights, our democracy, our resilience Our ability to choose. You know, we can choose each way, as the Muslim man said. It's a huge choice in front of us. We can do civil disobedience. We can show creativity. We can show love innovation and courage. These are all the things, the ideas that are seeded in this film with marvellous interviews with people in China and Africa and America. It's just marvellous the number of people he weaves into his picture of the resilience and creativity that you can find around the world in response to climate change. I think the best thing was by Bill McKibben, who is interviewed in this very brightly lit cafe, and he says to Uh, Josh Fox, look, I, I don't know why we call these hurricanes after innocent girls. You know, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy... What do we call it Hurricane Exxon, Hurricane Mobile, and call it for what it is? You know, Hurricane Exxon's devastating the sea seafront of New York. So that was a you know the catchiest idea. But there's lots in this film. If you'd like to see the film and have maybe a community screening in your local town hall, your classroom, your church, you need to go to the website of How to Let Go, Josh Fox. But the email to find out about hosting a community stri- screening is just this one. Have you got a pen? doc at gmail.com. So I think if you contact them at that, at that address, letgoandlovedoc at gmail.com, you will be able to get a copy of the film and show it to your community. As lots of the people in the foyer said to me, that's what they would like to find, a wider audience, because it was such a moving film.
6: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
1: Are you concerned about the growing threat of nuclear weapons? Join the Women's March to Ban the Bomb on the 17th of June in cities across Australia. It's women-led but inclusive of all. Go to womenbanthebomb.org for details. Voice your support for the UN negotiations now underway on a treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons and protest against Australia's shameful boycott of these historic talks. 17th of June, womenbanthebomb.org. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia is a 3CR supporter.
7: Treaty or sovereignty, and because recognition, it's not something that we haven't just turned up. So we don't need recognition in that sense. We've been here the whole time.
6: Treaty, from my understanding, from my old people, is end to the war, the end to our suffering, and a chance for two sovereigns to sit down and negotiate a settlement. A settlement also acknowledges what's happened to our people over the last 200 plus years so we can't
8: be talking about a treaty it's not a treaty process it's got to have international scrutiny we're just asking these criminals to, to determine the outcomes of the crimes that they've committed
1: 3cr radio for change three Hi, my name's Vivian Langford, and I'm reporting to you for the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. I was at the Transition Film Festival in Newtown in Sydney, and the film was called There Will Be Water. It was about greening the desert, and it it showed a lot of frustration for these big engineering projects. Even though it's feasible to desalinate water and uh, grow food in greenhouses... It's hard to also make a profit and the project hit something called the Valley of Death. This sort of work is being done in Australia right now at Port Augusta. There's a successful project there with a Sun Drop who is using uh, solar power to desalinate water and grow tomatoes uh, near, nearby to Port Augusta. So the panel more or less discussed that briefly but then they went on to talking about the frustration of projects in Australia. What are the frustrations? They got very carried away talking about Elon Musk as well and then they answered some questions from the audience about what are the most inspiring trends and what are the best things to read and how can you keep abreast of the changes, the very rapid changes that are happening in these sort of uh, renewable energy projects. As one person said, the reason a lot of people don't get on board is because they don't see, they haven't got the vision yet of what it will be like when these projects are up and running. So the the panel was really quite uh, lively at the end and I'm just giving you um, a part of their discussion.
2: There was another excellent, hilarious quote where the, uh, the project manager was saying, they haven't asked themselves the question of whether this project is good for the community. So I'm curious to think, can a, can a project afford to not ask that question? And maybe some examples that you've seen that are really good ones of where they have asked that question.
1: This is Miriam Lyons from GetUp.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think any project, whether it's non-profit or for-profit, should be asking itself what it's going to deliver for the community. And I've always, you know, been kind of confused by, like, big business peak bodies that say, oh, you know, you're asking us to, like, do all this stuff for the community and you're asking us, to, like, respect the environment. And I honestly think if you can't... You know, if you don't have faith that you can make a profit while respecting environmental limits and doing, you know, treating your workers well and contributing to the community, then it's you who actually doesn't have any faith in business or capitalism, not like the greenies who are calling for the environmental laws, right? So, you know, that always that should be just a baseline and you know i think that there are rooms for there is room for a whole lot of different approaches to solving this you know massive problem of global warming and that is that includes room for the Elon Musk's who you know want to make billions off selling everybody solar and electric cars and batteries. It turns out, and it also includes the Hepburn Winds in Victoria, community-owned wind farm. Um, very deliberate, explicit intention to make sure that all of the benefits from running that those wind turbines come back into the community you know to the point that they've actually named their wind turbines you know and that kind of local ownership and control and benefit and those kinds of principles that can be so so powerful you know apart from anything else it can be really b- powerful in making sure that uh, <clears throat> fossil fuel funded anti-wind farm campaigners get shown the door when they come into a community because the community knows that actually it's there for them it's not there to make somebody else about.
3: I've got a question around And what do you think in your line of work is the most exciting project in terms of, you know, this is a huge, massive, kind of really exciting project. What's happening now in Australia that you think is really worthwhile and something to get behind? So, I'm very excited that this
9: week we are all talking about clean energy, storing and saving clean energy from the sun and wind as the solution to power problems that have been caused by, like, privatisation and a bunch of greedy coal and gas companies, um, instead of talking about giving more power to greedy coal and gas companies and more public money to them as a way of solving those problems. So, that makes me very happy. Um, I think there are a bunch of things that we need to do to kind of seize this moment and run with it. And if not, I can just kind of put in a quick plug, if you go to github.org.au, um, you will find our campaign to make sure that everybody knows um, that batteries, like solar plus storage, is now cheaper than gas as a source of reliable 24-hour on-demand power. That's seriously game-changing. You know, obviously we know that acting on global warming is much cheaper than not acting on it. Because global warming turns out. Very expensive. Um, biggest price spike, incidentally, in Australia, big, big um, spike in the uh, inflation index actually came bigger than the one caused by the introduction of the carbon. The carbon price um, actually came from that massive flooding in Brisbane and the extreme weather that wiped out the bananas. Remember when bananas went through the roof? That actually pushed up the cost of living in
6: Australia more than the carbon price did. True fact. I was going to say the same. You know, t- two weeks ago we were all sitting around wondering this is Blair Polisi
1: the CEO of 350.org in Australia.
6: Scratching our head, how do we get people to understand that, that the solution is staring us in the face, that we have a solution, we know what it is, we just have to implement it? Along came Elon Musk with a tweet, and suddenly, really, the skies opened in a way that people suddenly just saw a way forward that was practical, that the South Australian government was willing to talk about and listen to, that made Malcolm Turnbull make a phone call to Elon Musk because he couldn't be left out of that little... Sweet exchange between billionaires and a guy who's pretty innovative and quite happy to give a hundred dollar i mean a hundred day guarantee you know if we can't deliver it and solve your problem in a hundred days it's free that's hilariously funny great twitter stuff but it, it meant it just dropped a little bomb into an otherwise two weeks ago dead time when everyone was thinking we simply can't get them to move and to change the thinking and my f- my favorite thing so your question was what's exciting about it In about three hours, we went from, literally, I I testified in front of a Senate inquiry on coal closure plants, and it was a liberal candidate, a liberal sitting member saying to me, you know, but, but what are you doing? What have you done to help us figure out this problem that is not going to destroy the economy and take jobs away? And it was like, you know, having a rock fall on your head. Well, what the fuck have you done in the last 10 years on climate change or, frankly, any issue? So I think in that in that weekend, uh, I certainly felt like the whole of the country went from, yeah, just that We can't get them to move. Don't even bother trying to. Just get out of the way. You know, the the answers are there. The people want to do it. It's not crazy, cost uh, expensive in a way that's going to kill us economically. What is in the way of us getting the solution up and running? And that happened in a weekend with a couple of tweets. It really broke a logger. You know, a, a, a complete stoppage of thinking and people are talking differently and they're seeing things differently it's become almost humorous and challenging to the to, the lips are looking really stupid they are looking as stupid as i felt sitting in that you know ten, senate test testifying getting asked why i my little not-for-profit hadn't solved the federal government's problem on climate change you know come on folks who's got the power we gave it to you. Yep, it was a pretty bad idea, but we did it. Get on with the problem-solving, and we're not doing it. And so, you know, the hope will be that the next stage of the game will be all of us, and then the mainstream. Let's face it, we're people in this room who care about this, and it's an unusual group of people. You don't have a lot of people joining us at events like this all the time. We try to kind of move out and further and further, but, you know, we got a lot of work to do to get mainstream people active and interested in these issues in a way that not only is just, you know, it's good benefit, great for me and my family and my community, but, hey, it's kind of great when you're involved in the solution side and within a community that's doing that themselves. There is
9: no more satisfying way to spend your time.
6: No, it's absolutely... I, I mean, You know, it takes a little getting used to giving the time and getting in there, but it, it's just uh, an incredible optimistic thing to be able to do, even if you only do it in a tiny way, in whatever way suits you. So that was my thing. That The, the logger jam broke... Um, With a couple of tweets from Elon Musk, you know, whether he'll be the one that solves the problem, probably not. But he he made it possible. Three days before it was impossible, suddenly it became possible.
10: I'm going to be boring and also nominate storage, but...
1: This is Piers Grove. He's from Energy Lab.
10: The company I want to talk about is based out in Canberra. They're called Reposit. What they do is they essentially plug together the batteries that people are installing in their homes so that they can be remotely managed as a fleet and what that means is that they can engage with the wholesale market so when demand peaks all of those batteries can operate to pump energy back into the grid now that's kind of cool as a business but one of the things that's really nice about it is I think Australians have built such an animosity toward their energy companies That batteries were perceived as a way of getting off the grid. That all I wanted to do was flick the finger to AGL, go out the front with some shears and cut myself off from the grid. But what Repositor is showing is that the grid is actually a really good asset for all of us and we can take control back over it. We can actually innovate and come up with models that allow us to use the grid as an asset. Everyone understands microgrids. They love the idea of like, "Oh, you and my neighbor will chuck a will chuck a wire over the back fence and we'll be we can share our power." And everyone loves that. But there is this great aversion to the grid even though that's a network that chucks a wire over the back of every single house's back fence and links us all together. And we all become generators and we all become storers and contributors into the grid. So it's a very, very big change in the dynamic between the consumer and their energy. We're not just going to sit there and be passive clients. We're going to decide whether we want to be a net contributor, whether we want to play in the high end of the market when it's you know, worth a lot of money because there's a scarcity, whether we want to be baseload, whether we just want to look after our own requirements. So I think Reposit's a really interesting company in that it's changing consumers' relationship with energy. I just wanted to ask, we talked about uh, media before.
8: So I'm an English teacher down in Campbelltown and I, I tend to really try and encourage my students to read the conversation because I think from all the media sources I've found the conversation is at least the most academic. Um, It tries really hard to be for the layman at the same time and they at least provide sort of research and evidence to at least, you know, back up what they're saying. I just wanted to, I guess, ask, what sources do you find um, are doing a a better job of putting out those solutions? Because a lot of people I speak to seem to have a lot of doubt that the solutions are there now. I think that's probably one of the biggest problems with the public trying to have faith in renewables and things like that is feeling like the solutions are not actually there. So do you know, I guess, what media or, I guess, what role media plays and and what um, media outlets or platforms do you think are doing a good job of actually getting those solutions out there?
10: You're absolutely um, spot on about this sense in the public that, ah, we're we're, going to solve this soon, Um, and the reality is that it's all there. I got driven nuts at the Paris Climate Conference when all the billionaires came out and said, We're going to pump a billion dollars into more research. And it's like, could you just bring what we've already got to scale? A billion dollars could build one heck of an awesome battery factory um, rather than searching for the perfect battery. In terms of where to get stuff, Renew Economy is probably. The, the pick it 's kind of geeky, but it 's well written it just looks a bit nerdy but yeah that's that's certainly that 's the go to get their newsletter delivered it's kind of keeps you across everything from e v s to recycling.
9: One of the things I really love about reading Renew Economy is it makes you aware just how fast things are changing, you know, like you read Renew Economy across the space of a year and you'll suddenly realise, oh my God, solar is still falling in price even faster than we thought, batteries are plummeting in price even faster than we thought, there's this cool project over there, there's that cool project over there and that can just be really, really inspiring, you know, just to get that even every single day there's something new that's cool that's happening in Australia or there's, you know, new evidence that the the whole project of going completely renewable is even easier than we had thought.
6: Um, so that's pretty, it's a pretty fun read. Uh, not too much to add, but maybe um, Guardian, for sure. You know, it's still, try, it's still a very mainstream voice in terms of the... You know, whereas Renew is a bit, can be a bit techie, mm-hmm. uh, Guardian's mainstream. And, and many of the stories that you'll find running in Renew will end up as a, as a more general story in The Guardian, so it's maybe a bit of an easier read. Um, and I'm a big tweet deck... Lover of pull pull in what I want to read. So I, on Twitter, you can use something called TweetDeck, which gives you streams, and you just pick hashtag topics and follow them. So you can follow just follow Energy uh, on Twitter, and and it's an incredible stream of usually media focused um, stuff, and often innovators. There's some great innovation hashtag uh, groups that run stuff on a lot of the new tech. Um, so all those things are good. Um, TweetDeck, for me, opened up a world of being able to literally look online for 10 minutes and get a world view of what's going on in the day, uh, especially around things like climate and, and energy stuff, in a way that it's hard to find in mainstream media. Um, also, the Climate Council will, I think,
9: have a new website out in not that long. I can't say what it is, but I think your students will find it very useful. And a great, and it will be a great entirely tweet stream. Fact-backed. Climate Next.
6: Council does really yeah. good stories on Twitter um,
9: and one one last little plug. Um, we um, spent four months. Uh, me and Nikki Ison GetUp and the and Solar Citizens spent four months researching our policy pathway from here to 100% renewable power for Australia. Um, turns out we can do it by 2030, and we'll save lots of money on fuel costs in the way. Um, it's based on really comprehensive um, energy system modelling from the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Who you know, like there are lots of ways you can get to 100% renewables, um, and that's model just one of those ways and because the costs are dropping all the time you know you can always find a newer and better way but it's one very comprehensive really solid um, demonstration that it's completely doable
2: this has been part of the transitions film festival which has been running for six years in melbourne and this year for the first time it came to brisbane and sydney of course
6: my quote is, you can't kill hope, but you can kill coal. So <laughs> Stop Adani is our focus this year. Uh, there's a road show of talks coming very soon, uh, the 29th in Sydney at Seymour Centre. Please come along. Uh, we're trying to get people actively involved in how we stop this mine. Um, it's their, our tar sands story. It's got to be stopped. So let's kill coal together. Um, So that report I mentioned was the
9: Homegrown Power Plan, which is energy as if people and the planet mattered. I
10: think that renewable energy is seen as a solution to a problem and I want people to see renewable energy as just a really exciting evolution of the way we create and engage with energy, not just as a political solution to something.
1: pledge your support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radio Thought.
7: off my friends I'm digging a hole just staring at the floor Now every t-shirt's got a wine stain I'm loving cigarettes again I know every tune about guys and girls and hurts and hearts and love. I miss you like sleep and there's nothing wrong about the hours I the mornings when it starts don't look so good. Now I've got a heavy heart, it's just a low and paying potato pop inside my shirt. But there's a way that's sitting. morning when it starts, oh, oh my
3: heavy heart. Uh, hi, my
4: name's Sarah, I love coming here because they offer vegan food.
0: Hi, my name is Paul, uh, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth, I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
6: A 3CR supporter.
11: Thank you very much. It's great to be here tonight uh, to be the the token white male to talk to you uh, about investment and jobs and various serious things like that. Um, I'll, I'll try and explain to you why I have a little credibility to do that, just to say that i um, about 2006, I was talking to some friends down at the Sydney Theatre Company and saying, wouldn't it be great if we could turn this cultural institution here and this down into a demonstration site of the, the future of energy. And so we designed a system that, unfortunately, I didn't get to sell. Some other business actually built it. That's the way it breaks sometimes in the, in the business. But um, we turned this magnificent, iconic rooftop into what was then Australia's largest um, solar system. And since that time, in the last decade... Uh, You all have actually had a little rooftop revolution here in Australia. You may not realise it, but one and a half million homes in this country have done that, have put solar on their homes, have started to defect from the grid. Some of you might have storage as well. And to lead this transition with your own actions... Which has been very powerful. I actually buggered off to America to start a business there, where I thought the pastures would be greener, and ended up in California because the then governor Schwarzenegger was offering some substantial rebates and incentives to get a business going, which we did. And I subsequently started some other companies, and now run this thing called the California Clean Energy Fund, which invests in very early stage startups, bringing all this energy transition to life in California. But. The point of that is to say, in that decade, more change has come to the electricity market than had happened for the previous 10 decades, quite literally. In the first 15, 16 years of this century, we have gone through a disruption in technological terms, a major technology shift, which I know some politicians in this country still have trouble understanding, but the world has chosen and has decided to move to clean energy and away from coal. And as a result, the coal markets of the world are crashing. And what I'm going to tell you about tonight is the sort of investment thesis for Adani and the risk assessment on the Adani coal mine, and it's not a good look, and it's not one that you as taxpayers should put your money into, and it's not one that we as Australians should allow to happen from a business point of view, let alone for all the good reasons we heard here tonight already. But the the fact of the matter is coal has already basically become dead man walking in the world. To give you some facts about that, the United Kingdom, the country that kind of generalised and created the technology to burn the stuff, to boil the water, to drive the steam turbines, now uses less coal annually in its electricity mix than it did in the 1800s, not in the 1900s. So it's now at the lowest point it's ever been, effectively, for over 100 years. The United States even with Donald, (laughs) is shutting down coal. Notwithstanding what he tried to do today, he can put out all the press releases he uh, likes about reviving coal, but as the coal industry themselves will say, it's very hard to do. We've shut down 250 major coal plants in America in the last five years. The coal mining industry has crashed. Peabody's been bankrupt. It's going through this wheel of creative destruction called capitalism and they're the ones on the downside of the turn these days. And it's not just them, it's the rest of the world too. Europe obviously, Japan has just shelved a a big new coal-fired power plant. China has mothballed this year, it's March, more coal plant, plant proposals than Australia has in its electricity grid. China is leading this charge, in fact. They put more solar in last year, in 2016, than was on Earth until 2010. (laughs) And India, as we'll discuss in a bit, is going the same way, which is why, fundamentally, this is a flawed business proposal. But the point is simply that solar is rising and coal is crashing. And there are models for managing this that make sense and create jobs and are easily managed. And... California is one of those. It's not the only one, but it's one I know well. But it's basically because it's a place where the politicians and the businesses and the civil society got together and kind of made a choice circa 2000 and said we're going to get off coal and we're going to get onto clean. And they've done it pretty intentionally and pretty clearly and it's worked. And the the benefits of it have been remarkable aside the clean air and the climate pollution reduction they've been able to grow about 500,000 jobs in the Californian economy in clean energy, in energy efficiency and renewable generation, operation and maintenance, 500,000. And they're now at a point where, by law, it's got to be 25% soon clean energy. They're going to bust way through that renewable portfolio standard. And by 2030, 50% renewable. But actually, last Sunday, we were 57% renewably powered in the state of California. just to give you a little bit of context, that's the sixth largest economy on earth. It's many times greater than the, the, the Australian market. It's twice the population of Australia. And we're running regularly 57% on a given day, a given week, and we'll go to 100%, which is now a piece of legislation being entered as a bill into this legislative season, to go 100% renewable within a, a few short years. And that vision that sort of stake in the ground by the politicians to say we want this to happen pulls demand, creates an entrepreneurial moment, brings in people from around the world like me to go and fill that void and takes advantage of the ecosystem that they have in California to create new jobs like the 500,000 I mentioned and new opportunities like Tesla, you know, a company which can make all you people pay deposits on cars in factories they haven't even built yet. (laughs) And It's built, at the same time, an economy that has spawned the largest, most profitable companies ever in history. Apple, Google, products and services you use every day. I'm sure you're probably using them right now because you're bored of all the the numbers I'm spouting. The, the, The fact is, California is a success story in the 21st century, one of the great success stories, And it's doing it while shifting from dirty to clean energy. We'll be done with all coal-fired power by 2020. There's a few trickles coming in from Nevada and Utah still. We have none left. There are no coal mines. There's no coal power plants. And we're getting off gas as well. So we're going free of fossil fuels in California while growing this global economy. So the point is, times they are changing. And yet here we have in Australia a bunch of politicians who instead of you know, seeing the future and trying to strive towards it and ride that wheel of creative destruction in the economy are going out of their way to go backwards and fight the tide and stick their heads in the, in the wheel. And the reason Adani is, is a bad investment from the kind of risk uh, assessment point of view is pretty simple. It's that India, which is meant to be the market to which Adani will be exporting this coal from Carmichael, is going the same way as the rest of the world. They've got the same air-mageddon crisis in Delhi as Beijing, which has been the motivation more than anything for China to, to change its ways. They have a very progressive and smart new power minister in Piyush Goyal, who's very clear he wants... To transition to clean energy too and capture all these values and these jobs and things. And he was on record last week saying within a decade he expects 60% of power in India to be renewable. Within three years he expects there to be no more imports of coal to India. That's the <laughs> Minister of Power in India, in Modi's government saying that. And, and the market is seeing it. So from like an investor's point of view, we look at things like that and say, okay, what's the reaction of the market? Sure enough, 20 to 25% down year on year for the first two months of this year in terms of imports of coal into India. The market is already responding. There's a lot of domestic coal in India, and it's their intention as much as they'll do thermal generation in India to use domestic sources while shifting radically to solar and wind and other stuff. And just to give you some numbers on that, they've built 10 gigawatts in three years of solar farms. 10 gigawatts is like 10 very large... Power plants. I don't think there's any gigawatt power plants left in Australia. They're, they're planning on doing 100 gigawatts by 2022, just of solar, and then the wind, and then the rest. That is how they're going to meet the energy uh, access needs of the couple hundred million people who don't have electricity in India. And that is how they're going to tame their grid and control their air pollution. And they're very intentional about that, just as California has been very intentional about it. And that's why Adani is a stranded asset waiting to happen. It's basically a story where this guy's going to bilk Australia for as much money as he can. And lo and behold, you're all on the hook for about a billion dollars out of your pockets to his. And right now, not even to his publicly listed company in Mumbai, but a Cayman Island shell. And then that business will have a go and get started and go bust like so many coal companies before it. But the problem is, these mining companies aren't the ones on the ground digging the holes, obviously. They're the ones in the big end of town making the money on the money and getting away with the boom and the bust cycle. And they'll move on in five years' time when this thing becomes stranded and that rail line never gets used and this country's been despoiled and this Great Barrier Reef has had 10,000 ships run through it and they will just go on with their business, which in Adani's case, you'll love this irony, is building solar farms in India. (laughs) He's the biggest developer of solar farms in India. Because there's incentives there for him to do that and because that's what the market is demanding. But in Australia, where you've got politicians that want him to dig holes in their backyard and despoil their reef and destroy their Aboriginal rights and do what they're doing to the climate, he'll do that too. But he's doomed because of this. The lead indicator for me looking at any market is going to be what's the price that his product's going to capture. And the fact of the matter is coal has been pretty steady and going up through time. And in India, it's no different than anywhere else. And solar has, in the last five years, come down precipitously because you put a million and a half solar homes together in Australia, because California went solar, because Europe went solar, Japan, China. And the scale, the economies of scale, the volume learning curve of that is reflected in the price per kilowatt hour of electricity in India. And today in India, you can buy contracts for electricity at 2.9 cents. You can't buy electricity from a thermal coal, a gas, a nuke, anything for less than that on this earth. In fact, there are solar contracts being signed in Morocco, in Mexico, around the world for less than electricity has ever been sold anywhere from any technology. That's the story of the last year. And that's why we win and why Adani goes bust, but we hope that he doesn't go bust with your billion dollars in his back pocket. (laughs) The reason that he shouldn't be allowed to get away with this is that the political rhetoric is that we're doing this in Australia for jobs, regional jobs in Queensland. But the trick here is that we do more jobs per unit of electricity produced than they do. It's somewhere between three and seven times, depending on which technology we're talking about replacing, gas, coal, nukes, and which technology we're filling it in with, distributed solar, centralised solar, wind, whatever. But three to seven times as many jobs per kilowatt hour, per dollar invested, are created by the capacity to produce the electricity, while the price per kilowatt hour of the service of electricity is lower than the other. It's the perfect scenario for a politician. You get low-cost power and jobs. And in Australia, that's actually borne out by the facts. It's certainly borne out around the world. I mean, here's the numbers from IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, where we've already got millions of people working in these spaces. The Chinese in their 13th five-year plan, which proposes to do about $160 billion worth of wind and solar over the next five years, are expecting 13 million jobs out of it, blowing these numbers out of the water. Um, In the States... We in the clean energy sector, including energy efficiency, employ about two and a half times more people than oil, gas and coal production in each of the, the, the majority of all the states. And so it is in Australia. There's been a few dabblings in regional Queensland in renewables with support from the federal government. IRENA and the CEFC threw some money at half a dozen uh, solar farms and a wind farm, about $70 million total of different kinds of capital, and that spawned these wind and solar farms, which employed 2,218 people in Queensland. As you heard earlier, the entire Adani mine will at most employ 1,500 people. And they want a billion dollars of your money for 1,500 jobs. For $70 million of your money, we've already seen that we can build 2,000 and more jobs and distribute at the location of these remote regional solar farms and wind farms throughout Queensland. So if jobs were what it was about, the politicians would go this way. To be honest, I don't know what it's about, and I've given you a whole lot of facts and a whole lot of ideas, and an argument, if you will, that you can take to dinner parties and, and wherever you need to, but I want you to take them to the streets because it's not an argument that we need, it's an army. It's a crowd outside the shareholders in the streets boycotting the banks that are going to provide the money to these boys, and if necessary, taking this to the ballot box. I believe, as has been said, that this is the Franklin of our times. I was old enough to be involved in that. I know I don't look like it. <laughs> and the the reality is, that was a big fight. That was very important. That set the tone for the Hawke-Keating years, and the Green Party, and many great things that spun out of it for years and decades to come. And was a shot heard around the world. This is much bigger than that. This is the Great Barrier Reef. This is the last chance you've got. This is a carbon bomb that blows away any pretense that Australia is serious about Paris. If we do this, this is 3% of the allowable carbon budget for the globe, the Galilee Basin. You have to draw a line in the sand. You have to stop Adani. Thank you for your work going forward. Take these facts, take these figures, take the fact that there's jobs, that this is going to be a stranded asset if it goes forward, but get out there and get organised so that we can all shine on.
1: Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions exports and industry, zero-emissions transport, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of Community Action and Climate Solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.
2: That was a Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio summer special where we take some of our favourite programs from 2017. We'll leave you now with the sound of the lyrebird, made famous by imitating other bird calls and sounds that it hears in nature. See if you can pick up on any of the other bird calls that it's imitating and have a happy and safe holiday.